You're tuned into Going Long with Bruce Murray. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce Murray. Welcome to my podcast, Going Long, where every week we spend time with either people in the world of sports or those that have a love of the world of sports. And this week, it's the latter. You may not recognize the name when I mention it. It's Eric Stengel, by the way. And if you don't follow him on Twitter, you should. He's, from everything I've read, one of the great Twitter followers of all time. I'm not a big social media guy, but I have looked him up on Twitter. And man, he tweets some funny stuff. He's got about 120,000 followers. But when you learn what he's done, you may want to pay attention to the conversation. Here's a guy that went to Syracuse because he wanted to be in sports broadcasting until he realized that that may not be the path that would be best for him. And you'll hear that as part of the conversation. So what does he do? He gets out of school and pursues life as a writer, which can be tough for anybody. And yet, I don't want to say meteoric, because you're going to hear stories and challenges that that came along, along the way, but starts to get jokes that are picked up on Saturday Night Live. And at the age of 26, becomes a writer on The Late Show with David Letterman before becoming one of the head writers on The Late Show with David Letterman, spent a lot of years there, has written for the Academy Awards, has written uh, for the Comedy Channel at Sirius XM Radio, worked on the Harry Connick Jr. show, now has a lot of things in production, and obviously, as a writer, just works in the world of entertainment, which I find so fascinating. I hope you do too. Here now my conversation with Eric Stengel. So, Eric, before we get into what you're doing, how you're doing, and I, I want to share with our audience a little of our background and how we may have met, because I'd never met you before. This is the first time I've ever seen you. Um, and yet, you know, in exchanging emails and setting this whole thing up, which was harder to set up than, than a, a podcast with George Clooney, um, yes. I, I, I kind of felt like I got to know you a little. Yeah. You know, I, we're from the same town, although we uh, are. I've relocated, you've relocated. My yep. kids went to this same high school that you graduated from. Yeah, Ars Greeley High School, go Quakers. Yeah, Go Quakers. Uh, You know, I was fascinated to see that you actually signed with a professional baseball team in the little research that I did do. Four of them. Four of them. Yes. You're a well- Yeah, we'll get to that. (laughs) Yes, we'll get to all that. (laughs) You're a well-traveled baseball player. Yeah. Interesting, because I did a podcast with D.B. Sweeney, who left Mm -hmm. to go- How many many teams did he play for? Just one, but in Australia. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. They have a big, a big baseball league there. Uh, we, we'll get to it, I guess, whenever you want to. But but we're trying to get signed by an Australian team too. Of course you are. Why not? Yeah. But but I, I think to myself, knowing what I know of Chappaqua, where you know when I grew up, mom and dad wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer. You know, yep. Jewish, Jewish household. That's what you yep. did. That was supposed to. Yep. So as you can imagine, to this day, I'm still a disappointment to them doing radio. And in Chappaqua, it's not even a doctor and a lawyer. You have to be a banker and work on Wall Street. Right. So, right. so I'd love to know the background and how your parents accepted the fact that you wanted to do something that who's you just, yeah, who's, doing. Who, who's saying that they've accepted it? Um, my brother and I, uh, we're a writing team and we produce stuff together, my brother Justin and I. Um, and there was no hope for Justin. He was never going to become a doctor. My, my dad was a doctor. He was an infertility oh, right? specialist. Yep. And so uh, my grandparents were always just making the assumption that I was the great hope of the family and I would become a doctor and do all of that. Um, 
And then we realized, my Justin and I realized that we were not good at a lot of things. And, uh, but we, what we were good at was we, we made little movies. Uh, we had a Super 8 camera when we were kids. We had a video camera. We would, um, we would do our version of Late Night with David Letterman in our living room and tape it and all that stuff. And everything that we would do, we had to do school projects and things like that. Um, they always had a comedic slant. And so we kind of fell into it. I went to Syracuse University and actually wanted to be a, a sports broadcaster. Oh, you did? Yep. I studied broadcast journalism there. But on my very first day, I was surrounded by other people. Everybody wanted to be Bob Costas or Mar Marv Albert, somebody like that. And on my very first day, I, I was just like surrounded by conversation of people probably like yourself who just know everything about everything. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, I like sports, but I don't breathe sports. And I knew on my first day that wasn't going to happen. So <laughs> I studied uh, TV writing and news writing and things like that. And I sort of learned how to write and edit myself. And so I was sort of still on a good path, you know, when I got to Syracuse. And then by the time I ended, I, I left uh, when when I graduated, um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And Justin and I uh, started, he, actually, Justin started teaching a sketch writing class at a place in New York City. And I started taking classes there, too. And we started thinking, okay, this is pretty good. There's lots of other people here that that want to go into television or acting or writing or comedy writing, anything like that. And we would start to put on shows and performances. And this felt like a good path to go down. And meanwhile, like there were other opportunities that sort of like I worked at PBS for a little while as a researcher. And I thought, I'm never going to want to do this. This is just not in my blood. But Justin and I were like so taken to creating stuff and pretty much acting like idiots as a job so we um I, we just sort of did it and we started our own sketch comedy group where Justin and I would rent out a theater in the city every few months and we would have a bunch of people who were wanting to be writers and other people who wanted to be actors who would all come in and we would do the show for free so everybody would use it as a showcase and our our name was called Big City Comedy. And we came up with that name specifically because we wanted people to feel like that they've heard of it before when they actually hadn't. <laughs> and it happened all the time. People were like, oh, yeah, I know Big City Comedy. Well, no, we've been around for like two weeks. So we did these shows uh, in different theaters around the city. And it's like Saturday Night Live kind of sketches. And when we would do the shows, we would invite producers, casting people uh, to come see it. It was a showcase for everybody and people would get work out of it. And people have gone on to do, write for all kinds of shows and act in movies and TV. And um, it, we did it for about two years and it gave us a chance to sort of showcase what we wanted to do um, at a time when we were just starting out. We sort of just acted like we were a show and we became a show and tried to get everybody we could to come see it. And uh, we got meetings out of it. Justin and I got invited to a meeting um, at a cartoon show called The Tick. The Tick has been done a million times. Which I love, by the way. But there love was a cartoon it. There was a cartoon of it in the mid-90s on Fox. Right. And Justin and I were called into a meeting. And this is our first meeting. We go in and we meet with the guys. And 
we're just going to chat. And they said, okay, what do you got? And we had no idea that it was a pitch meeting. And so in the moment, Justin said, I don't know, a superhero exchange program. And they, they sat back and they're like, ooh. And they discussed it and they wanted to buy that phrase from us and write it themselves. And we're like, this is the greatest job ever. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the very first thing that we worked on. And um, from the original sketch comedy class that we had taken, there were people that were starting to go somewhere in various fields in television and movies, things like that. And there was one guy who had been writing freelance jokes for Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live. And he was moving on to something else and said to us, guys, do you want to take over for me? Do you want to just start pitching jokes? And so this is back before email, really. It was probably like 95 or 96. And we were sending jokes to Norm MacDonald every week for Weekend Update when he was the host of of Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live. And my brother and I would stay up all night on Friday night and write jokes that we thought would be good for the show. And for 10 months, we never heard anything. We faxed them in. And one day we called and we said, we don't care if you think they're funny. We just want to make sure that you're getting them. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, Stango Brothers, we know who you are. We know who you are. We're getting them. And then that Saturday, we got our very first joke on. And we were just totally blown away. And Norm Macdonald paid us like 30 bucks or something for the joke that we had to we had to split it and we took the check and we blew the check up to one of those sweepstakes size checks and yeah. hung it on the wall <laughs> and it yeah so that that was how we kind of proved to our family that they didn't need to be disappointed because we were actually felt like we were getting somewhere so uh, man in, in just three minutes you brought up like nine million things that I need to up <laughs> on do you remember the joke by the way uh I think the first joke we got on was a Jack Kevorkian joke. I think it was, it was sometime where I, I remember there was like a, uh, every few weeks he would help somebody, somebody die with dignity. Yeah. But, but the joke was like that uh, another one of Jack Kevorkian's patients died this week. It's the 37th person that uh, has died under his watch. Why do people go to him? He's a terrible doctor. But like Norm's telling that joke is funny. <laughs> right. So so the, the thing about Norm is, and you know, he's had a, a somewhat checkered career, but there was something about his humor that just fit my sensibilities. Yeah. He went on late night television. I think it may have been with Letterman. I think it was. Yeah. And to this day, I remember what I consider to be the greatest line that I've ever heard delivered when he said, when he was fired from Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And was it Brandon Tar? Who was running it? Who was running it? Don Olmeyer. Don Omar said, yeah. he said, he called and he goes, you're fired. And he goes, that's bad news. And then he goes, why? And Don Omar said, you're not funny. And Norm <laughs> takes this long pregnant pause and goes, well, that's really bad news. And the way he could deliver a joke <laughs> yeah. to me was, he just fit my sensibilities. I'm so disappointed that his career is in far greater. I loved him on SNL doing the news. I loved he him. Was, he was great. And, and if you go back and watch clips of it, what what I like about Norm's stuff so much is that he, he's super dry. His stuff either gets really big laughs or it gets absolutely nothing. And when it gets nothing, and he's just like, what? Yeah. It's like the stuff that tanks is the best. And actually, that's why back in the day when 
Late Night with David Letterman was originally on, if, if you watch any of those clips of his monologues, silent, just silence. Um, and, and, and it's like, it's because there was nothing like that before. Let me close my shade here. I'm getting directly on. Yeah, you, you want to get that direct, direct sunlight out of your eyes. There we go. Yeah. Look a little better. This is, this is called doing live podcasting right oh now. Oh, my God. As okay, we wait for now, we're back. now he's back in the chair. So, and, and you came to Late Night after it already established itself. But e even before we get there, uh, just going back to how you and I met, I think is interesting, because you talked about going to Syracuse. You were in Syracuse, I assume, with Kenny Albert. You mentioned everybody wants to be more of Albert. Yep. But uh, I assume you were there with Kenny, similar in ages. But he might have been, yeah, he might have been a little earlier than me. I think he's a couple years older than I am. Okay, but, but you were at Peter Luger's one night. And yes. I, I'm obligated in this podcast to mention, you know, I was there for Rich Ackerman's birthday. He's been mentioned yes. on this podcast numerous times. Mm -hmm. I've been part of the birthday celebration for a number of years. Kenny and he are great friends. Yep. You came over to say hello. There was yep. a chance we could have met that evening. But then the act reaches out to me and he goes, hey, you should have this guy, Eric Stengel, on your podcast. I said, oh, how am I going to get in touch with him? And I guess he reached out to you. Yeah, we and... talk all the time. Yeah, occasionally. Um once we you're in his have... web, by the way, you're done. You do know that, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I just, I keep it. I would never tell him where I am right now. Like that's, <laughs> that's fine. Um, yeah. So I remember that we were there for my dad's birthday at Peter Luger's the first time we'd ever been there. And we, we saw you guys and I guess we, I, I'm not sure. We, I guess I knew Kenny from Twitter or something and went up and said, hi to you guys. And I, 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 sort of knew knew all of you and we all spoke to each other briefly and then ate steak at our individual tables and then said hi one more time and left and then somehow ak and i have stayed in, in contact over the years and we've had a lot to talk about because he was friends with regis philbin correct and my brother justin and i were friends with regis and oh. there have been various occasions where we it's like oh i got a regis story that i that I haven't thought about in a long time that you'd appreciate. And we, and we swap good ones. And, and actually Justin and I wrote um, an animated show that we sold to Fox, um, which kind of is based on our friendship with Regis. Justin, so Regis kind of lived in, uh, in the general area of where I believe you live. Just a couple blocks away. Right. And my brother was in that neighborhood and Regis would occasionally say, you know, uh, uh, he would just call him and say, I'm coming over. And just, it'd be like Saturday morning and Regis would be uh, coming over. And then he would, Regis would have like a, a, a piece of paper and he'd say, Joy just gave me this list of things that I have to go pick up at the supermarket. Does this mean anything to you? Like, what is it? And then they go through the list. It's like they're doing the show. <laughs> right. And then Regis would go off and he would buy the stuff at the supermarket and he'd come back to Justin's house and then show Justin and his wife, Lara, what he bought. And they'd be like, you know, is this is this hummus with olive tapenade? And they'd say, no, no, that's with pine nuts. And he'd be like, oh, I need to have to go back to the store again. But like at a moment's notice, he would get a call that was like Regis. There was there was some Olympic hockey game that was gonna like that was that day, and Regis just called Justin and said, I'm coming over. And Justin's not a sports guy. Like I'm a sports guy, and he's a Star Trek guy, and. So he's asking me what he needs to know about this game. I'm like, just, you know, sit and have fun. You're sitting and watching hockey with Regis Philbin. What could go wrong? Um, so that, yeah, that's that's sort of how we, Ak and I have stayed in touch. 
Well, well, here I, I don't mean to make this about the ACK, but I'll share you an ACK Regis story. And for those that, that don't know it, if you're not listening to New York, ACK is a relatively famous New York fixture on WFAN, where he's done yep. updates for a lot of years. So ACK and Regis have this friendship, and I have Regis on my show. This has got to be 20 years ago, just after they had met. Now, for the first six months of their relationship, Regis called the ACK Zimmerman. Because he didn't know his name and he heard him doing updates and he'd see him at the gym and he'd go, hey, Zimmerman, how's Notre Dame going to be? So I have, I have Regis on my show and I said, we have a mutual friend, but a friend who only recently you learned what his actual name was. Yeah. And in the typical Regis you know, fashion, he goes, can you believe it? I'm calling him a Zimmerman. He doesn't correct me. For, for, for six months, I'm calling him Zimmerman. He doesn't, then I'm listening to the fan. I learned his name is Ackerman. And I go, why didn't you tell me? That was Regis. Like for six that months, was. their relationship was predicated on a lie. Right, <laughs> right. But, uh, enough of the act, because yes. I really want to get to the whole Letterman thing, because that, that, mm -hmm. that's what made me so interested. Because another guy who, again, just resonated with me, you talked about wanting to be in sports. I wanted to be a, a David Letterman talk show host when I was a kid. Yeah. To the point where I don't know if you're old enough to remember the network that launched about 20 years ago called America is Talking. Yeah, I remember that. And they were looking for hosts. And I did like a 30 minute Letterman. I did sketches. And I did a, a stand-up bit in an old age home where I told these jokes that none of them got and fell on deaf ears and had that yeah. same kind of reaction. So Letterman launches in 1982. Mm -hmm. I'm in college as a sophomore. They take him off my junior year and they put on Alan Thick, the thick of the night. Okay. Of the night. Here's what I do as a college student with a bunch of other college students at Tulane University. We go mm -hmm. and do a sit-in at the NBC building downtown, thinking that. This sounds really bright. Probably just a good way to get out of class. Yeah. And, and then a year later, Letterman's back on, and we think we had something to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might as well claim credit for it. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. That, that's, that's the genius of me. But so you get out of school, Letterman's already established, and you make it right. sound like your path. I don't want to make it, I don't want to oversimplify no, no, no. it. But, but you got there pretty quickly. So how did you get to Letterman, which to me was like, that, that was the Mount Rushmore at that time. Right. Well, we, we had a lot of, we had some crap jobs and like that, you, you just have to expect that you're going to have crap jobs, but you do the best that you can. Like, so we did the sketch comedy show. We got people from the animated show, the tick to come see it. They asked us if we wanted to pitch. So we got into that world that way. Um, we had an opportunity through somebody else. We had, we did this crazy job where we were hired a week at a time. I, I, there's so much to explain here. A week at a time for the USA Network, there was a show that was on during the day called USA Live. And USA Live took place. Nobody saw it. So don't even pretend that you saw it. Oh, no, I watched it all the time. Yeah. So <laughs> USA Live took place on this diner set. And they would have people sitting and pretending to be drinking coffee and, and doing whatever. And the point of the show was to be wraparounds while they showed old episodes of Love Connection and the People's Court from like the 80s. It made no sense. They're trying to repurpose old episodes right. with new content. And so like they were, we had nothing to do with this show, but we, we shot some remotes for it with, with stand-up comedians. But like on this USA Live show, they would go up and interview people and say, you know, what do you think Judge Wapner's going to say about the dog that took a leak in somebody's yard? And the people would earnestly answer, but like, 
this stuff happened in 1984, and this was now like 1996, and nobody cares, and probably everybody was dead in the <laughs> clips. So, <laughs> so we had a job there. We worked in the Hotel Pennsylvania in Manhattan, which is across from Madison Square Garden. We worked in, um, they had these cubicles that was in an old haunted ballroom. And everybody was like, oh, my God, I saw the ghost today. I saw it. And so it was a really creepy place to work. And like I said, we were hired a week at a time to, to write remotes for stand-up comics that we would shoot out like man on the street kind of things. And the same thing happened every week. But around Thursday, we would think, OK, this is going to be our last week. We haven't heard anything. Friday, we'd come in all pissed off. We'd pack up the office. Five o'clock Friday, somebody would stick their head and say, yeah, okay, stay for another week. And then we'd be really pissed off because we'd have to stay there and unpack everything in our office. And week after week, after, like pretty soon we we're getting pissed off that they're bringing us back. Right. What were you getting paid for this? I, we got paid something, but not a lot. I mean, it was, it was, it, it was exciting to get paid to get something on television. Really, we were doing this so we would have the tape. So this this sort of gets us to the Letterman part. We had been getting some jokes on Weekend Update. Those jokes, we saved the, the clips of them. We saved the physical clips of them in Entertainment Weekly, things that got quoted. And so now we had now we had like uh, something to submit if 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 we had the opportunity. So we heard that a bunch of people had left Letterman and they were looking for writers and Justin and I stayed up all night. We wrote a packet. We wrote sample top 10 lists. We wrote ideas for Dave uh, that he could do as remotes, like driving around in a van in New York City, whatever, uh, things of the spirit of the show. And we also had our Saturday Night Live stuff and this really super weird show. Oh, the other half of, of that job was these guys had bought some old martial arts movies and they gave it to us and they're like 70s martial arts movies, really bad ones. Um, and they would give them to us and say, okay, re-edit them into other things. So like there was a scene where a guy, there was a fight and there was a guy who had his arm chopped and literally you see a mannequin arm fly off. Like they're that bad. <laughs> and so we would re-edit them into like, have you been hurt in an accident? And to some like crappy lawyer commercial. And that was our job too. For USA Network. So we had little videotapes like that, that and we, we combined all that. We submitted it to the Late Show. They called and said they would like to, us to come in for an interview. They had seen our tape and they liked it and they thought this could be something. So we went in and we interviewed. And I remember they ended the interview by saying, don't leave town. And I thought that's either really good news or really bad news. Um, but it turned out to be good news because we started that next Monday and we worked there for 17 years. But like we were hired on the strength of having the tape from those crappy jobs. Um, and pretty soon we were actually put in charge of every Friday, we would go around with Dave and shoot remotes. And that was the most daunting thing ever because here I was, it was 90, 97 is when we started. So I was 26. And all, I, I like freaked myself out because I was just thinking, holy crap, it is now my job to tell Dave Letterman what's funny. And that just doesn't add up. And I could never say anything that could make him laugh. And how could that work? Yeah, but 26 years old. 
I mean, I'm thinking, you know, you had crappy jobs, but, you know, this idea that you were going to make it in entertainment. And then at 26, you're the writers for the David Letterman show. By the way, real quick, before you even get to that, are you and your brother just a package deal? Like if they said, well, we like, would anybody be able to separate the work? If somebody no, said we I want mean, you, we, but not that you're together. Yeah, we're together. And, and okay. we've always we've always created stuff together. We're 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 good at a lot of things together because like if I can't figure out the the way a joke should be worded or what the right reference is, I send it to Justin and he totally gets it. And it's like, oh yeah, of course that's what it is. And I do the same for him. Like we complete each other in a really creepy way. <laughs> but but that that could work if you're pitching an idea, you know, the Coen yeah. brothers work together, movies. But if Letterman wants to hire a single writer, would you even apply for that? I mean, does that how does that work? That that's when we say to our manager, you you do whatever that is that you do and tell people that they're making a tremendous mistake by not bringing both of us in and then we'll deal with it. <laughs> like, have you ever thought about just pitching one and splitting the salary, let the other guy stay? No, I'm kidding. Well, you know? but you, interesting you say that because in television, when there are writing teams, you split the money. That's oh, what do. it is. Yeah. So it, they don't care. They get an extra person out of it. So, so, so when you get hired to do Letterman, how is the money? Is it good? It seems like a really big deal. It, it's got to be pretty decent. Well, thank God for the Writers Guild. The Writers Guild negotiated great deals. And so when when you start, um, it's sort of like your football, where there's you're kind of slotted in. You come in at you scale. Make Writers Guild, yeah, scale. And then you can do, you know, plus 5% or plus 10% or whatever it is. You negotiate that ahead of time. But like when you first sign with them, it's standard. Like your first three or five years even might even might be worded in your contract. So, so when, when do you get to the point when you think they need me and I can now negotiate a deal that's more favorable to me? Did you get to never, that point? Never, never, because never, because at the end of the day, whatever you've been slaving over and you're working on and writing and rewriting and editing and sending back with notes and doing all that, whatever if that dave can sit there and say something that's funnier than anything that you've been working on which is like he truly his brain is wired in a different way and that feeling never goes away where you're constantly like constantly just thinking like oh my god yeah that's that's the joke so he he's the guy who 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 like thinks differently and they can replace any of us, you know? So I actually believe, this is just my personal opinion, that I don't think you could execute the show the way he did without being a true genius. I actually thought he was a genius. There are other late night talk show hosts that are funny, but I think he was genuinely a genius. And, I, and, and it brings me to this. It, it makes me wonder how intimidating it must have been to be in that situation, to knowing that you're going to present stuff to him and there's got to be some level of validation if he likes it and really disappointment oh if he doesn't, but it's got to be intimidating. It, the, it, it is the best thing ever when you show him something and he likes it. Like for a long time, it was my job to, um, to go on the road and shoot stuff with Biff Henderson. We would go to Yankee spring training every year. We would go cover the world series. We did a, a, a bunch of segments where, we would travel across the country to some of the smallest towns in America um, and sort of highlight the great things that are happening there. And it wasn't a way to make fun of them. It was to say like, these people are living the true American life and they're all supposed to be funny. And 
I was really proud of those things that when we would shoot them and we come back and I take like, I get to take a week to edit them and you never get like, it's a machine. When you work for a show like that, you're constantly feeding a machine. You got one show coming up. You got another one to think about. You got two on Thursday. Like you're feeding the machine all the time. But when you, when you shoot remote, sometimes you got time to edit it. And so I was able to really craft something in a way that I like it. And the best thing would be showing it to Dave and he would look at it and he'd give notes. He'd be like, you know, uh, I don't think we need this joke or we should actually end on this joke. And and so you write all the notes down. But there were times where he would look at it and just say, yeah, that's cute. And that was like the greatest thing that you could hear, because that just meant that that it just connected with him. Well, I, I always wonder to what extent, you know, they portray things accurately in movies. Did you ever see the movie Late Night with Emma Thompson? I have not seen it. Okay, so she plays a late night host who's yep. very, you know, uh, angry all the time, treats her staff poorly, doesn't even know most of their names, doesn't, has never met most of them who sit in a writing room every day, banding about with jokes that could present it to her. Sometimes they're skipped over. And I, I say to myself, I wonder how close to reality that may be. Like, how involved was he in the day-to-day process that you guys did? No, well, no matter what, all of the material went through Dave. And so, like, there was, you know, we were, it, by the time it was 2002, he had been doing a late night show for 20 years. And then he still did it for another, like, 14 years. So, like, he had done everything. So, like, at some point after he had his heart surgery, it sort of became about giving him, um, uh, giving him the kind of day that he needed to be able to do the show. And so we would, we would go off and write stuff and produce stuff and then show it to him uh, at a later point to get his notes. He, I kind of like, I really, the one thing that I wish we were able to do was work on the old show when he was more involved in like the writer's room and things like that. Like we didn't get that as much uh, during my tenure, but being the head writers, um, we were constantly bringing him things and we didn't work on the monologue. There was a separate group for that. But he was either honing those jokes or looking at our stuff or looking at stuff for the um, for his guest segments all day. He he every single thing went through his filter. So, so was it competitive? Because in the movie, they, they show like if your joke makes it to the monologue, that was like a big deal. And if your joke didn't and there seemed to be a little, you know, competitive play going on behind the scenes because, you know, obviously everyone wants to keep their job and, and everybody wants to be recognized. Was there that level of competitiveness inside that building? Totally. But I, I think I, I think a lot of it just came with in, like in your own mind. When you when you see the board that has the five shows that you're taping that week, and then you see like, oh good, I have I have something in act four on Monday and Thursday that I wrote, you feel pretty good because you're like in the mix and you're getting a lot of stuff on. If there's a whole week and you don't see something. Like you can look at it and think, oh, I'm not getting stuff on. You can start to implode. Like it's it's the, there's a lot of pressure that you put on your on yourself because when you're in the writer's room, it's all people that are super smart and come at things from different ways, and you do find yourself competing with them. And and I'm sure that you know, like you said, if if you get overlooked, it's got to be tough. But you know. I, you worked with him for how many years from 90? Was it 98? Uh, 97 to uh, 
we, we did 17 years there. 17 years. And listen, I grew up a fan of the late, late show that was on after Johnny Carson right. when he was just getting started. And it was so irreverent. And I always used to think to myself that he'd have the show and the guests would almost like interfere with what I wanted to see. And then as time went right. on, it kind of transitioned out of that to become more of an interview program, which, and I don't know if you're even comfortable talking about this. I never thought that was his strength. His strength was his ability to deliver a joke and do some of those bits that, that were so irreverent and so funny. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know age plays a role and health plays a role in that, but did you kind of see that evolution, that transition out of what he was to what he became at the end? Yeah, I think, I think the show definitely evolved. And I actually think... I think he, he's one of those guys like Regis who is a great broadcaster. He's like, he became a great broadcaster. Um, and the interviews, just like you, you hear people talk about how Howard Stern, he used to do all kinds of irreverent things. And now all they say is that you know, people will sit down with him and the, and the interviews are amazing. Yeah. Um, but, and I think Dave had, um, a similar transformation on his show the, what my brother and I did was as the show kind of evolved instead of weighing it down with big comedy pieces like where he's sitting at the desk and holding up props and funny things we tried to give him smaller pieces of comedy here and there so that if he wanted to talk about something if he wanted you know, he's desperately trying to get Oprah on the show. So he's holding up his Oprah log and he's going to enter something in the Oprah log that he's going to make up in the moment. He can do our comedy. He can do the Oprah log and then he can go back to another piece of comedy. Like we tried to give him smaller pieces of comedy that he could weave in and out of. If he had something to say, he could wave off all our comedy. And, and if he didn't have something to say, then he could do it all. And there's a plan in place. So we tried to be as flexible as possible depending on you know what he was thinking in the moment if there's if there's two guys in the audience let's say we have a whole show planned let's say that i, I went to yankee spring training with biff and we're ready to to, to show that piece and have biff come out and do all that but in the warm-up let's say dave sees two guys that have the same sweater the whole show is going to be be about those two guys so then all of a sudden the writers were trying to come up with things that we can do um we're going to take those two guys we're going to have Dave interview both of them, why they both wore the same sweater. And then we're going to give them two different matching sweaters. Like we're going to take away their old sweaters and we're going to raise them to the, to the roof or whatever it is. You have to be able to pivot. And, and, and that, cause that Dave did that better than anybody. Um, so we would have a structure, but we were watching just in case we started to deviate from the structure and then, that's it. If he wants, if he wants to send a camera out to Broadway and have somebody stop a New York City bus, the director was ready to do that. So that that's you have to sort of think of what any possibility could be. Well, I will tell you that, and and I, I want to get to other things in a second. But uh, I was fortunate that my dad's office uh, was on Fifty Second and Seventh. 18th oh, yeah. 7th Avenue and his window of his office actually overlooked the Ed Sullivan Theater. Oh, is that right? So if there was a bit that was going on on, was it 51st Street or 52nd Street? Whatever 53rd it was, Street. 53rd. Uh, 53rd. He had the view of it so he could say, hey, you may want to come up here. And our studios were just down the block on 49th and 6th. 
So there were times I could actually come up and get a firsthand look at that. That's but pretty cool. Before we move on to the other things, what I would say is this. I was fortunate enough to work with guys like Bill Parcells. Um, and you may be old enough to remember a guy like Bill Mazur in New York, who was a legend. Oh, of course. I worked with yeah. him at WFN. And to this day, people would say, what was he like? What was he like? Can you meet anybody that knows your history without them asking you, what's David Letterman really like? Um, man, it's been so long since I've talked to anybody. I've been inside for a year. Uh, <laughs> it, it comes up. Sure. Yeah, I guess it comes up. Um, I, I think usually the questions are like, did you ever work with so-and-so? Like what's Bill Murray like or what's Steve Martin like or, or things like that. Yeah, but absolutely people are they want to know people always ask questions about dave's beard and i have no idea i, have, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what i think he just got tired of shaving every single day for the show which yeah. makes sense now yeah. he's making up for lost time they must be shocked that you don't have some great insight into why he has a long white beard which nobody seems to be able to tolerate but he seems to be happy with it so god yeah. bless him i guess right his choice so so you're off that show. And, and one of the reasons why we had to reschedule this podcast was because you emailed me and said, I've got to do a pitch. So I would ask you this first, how'd the pitch go? Very well. It went, it went well. very well. In fact, we have a follow-up to the pitch this week that I hope will go even better. Oh, you do. So I'm not going to ask you specifically because you probably don't want to divulge that information, but I'm, I'm even curious about that and the landscape of where TV is today, because I saw that bit like on South Park where, you know, there's now the guy running Netflix and he picks it up. Yeah, you're green lighted. You're green lighted. You're, you yeah. know, they, they need so much content. And that too must have been far more competitive. But as the landscape expands, there's so many more opportunities. But my knowledge of a pitch comes from watching Seinfeld. You know, right. it's a show about nothing. And, right. you know, why would people watch? It's on TV. Not yet. So <laughs> what, what, what is the pitch process like? You said you did the tick and you're like, well, how about this exchange student of a superhero? What's the pitch process like? The pitch process, by the way, uh, you talked to Greg Garcia about this and yeah. he's, so when he was on your podcast, he talked about how difficult it is to get a job on, uh, to get a show on the air. And he's one of the successful guys. Yeah. And he's talking about how almost like he gets shows on. Um, my brother and I had been doing, we were doing late night and then we did a daytime show for a couple of years with Harry Connick Jr., which was really fun. And then since then, we've been breaking into the scripted world. It's really tough to describe. I can only give you examples of what it's like. My brother and I wrote, wrote this show called Lyle and Caroline, which we sold to Fox. And it was that was the thing I was telling you about before that was based on our friendship with, with Regis Philbin or inspired by that. Mm -hmm. And we we just wrote the script. We liked the script. It, uh, our manager and agent had sent it around and um, you have to sort of package things. You try to get a, a name involved so you can go to a studio and say so and so wants to be involved in this show too. You, you sort of have to get as much together as you can. So we were, Justin and I were just working one day and we got a call from our agent and he's like, you'll never believe it. Um, Lisa Kudrow, uh is interested in doing Lyle and Caroline. And we're like, okay, cool. She's like, okay, she's going to read it and then uh, we'll get more notes. We're like, fine. So we hung up and like a half an hour later, okay, Lisa Kudrow really likes the script and she, and she wants to talk to you guys. And we're like, Okay, great. That's great. 
So half hour later, phone rings again. And it's, oh, uh, uh, yeah, you know, you know what? She doesn't even have to talk to you guys. She's in. And we're like, okay, so now we have Lisa Kudrow in and we don't have to talk to her, but okay, that's great. So they go to Fox. They sold the script with us involved and Lisa Kudrow involved. And then thing crazy things always happen. There, there were people at Fox that were involved in our show that all of a sudden were not with the network anymore. Disney bought Fox and there's new people that come in and they want to work on their projects and not things that are holdovers. So it sort of just went away. And the weirdest part of all of that is we never even got to talk to Lisa Kudrow. We sold a show to them. <laughs> she was in on it. It came and went. It's like it didn't happen. <laughs> but when you come up with an idea for a show, you really have to have everything figured out. Like you come up with the one or two line log line, the version, like the, the, the description of what the show is. You come up with what the tone is so that people in the room could be like, you know, it's Ted Lasso meets uh, Alf or whatever it is. By the so, way, I love Ted Lasso. That's a really good show. I love that show. So something to learn from Ted Lasso that that they did exactly right is that, in my opinion, shows are really good when you care about the characters and when the characters care about each other. Mm -hmm. So like the, the Office, Parks and Rec, things like that. Like it, it doesn't matter that Ted Lasso was about soccer. It right. was it, they're really good stories and they're good characters and and they really nailed that. Um, so you have to kind of say what your what tone your show is like. But I wouldn't. Everybody's going to say our show is like Ted Lasso now, so you can't do that. So um, then you come up with your list of characters. You go through every single thing that happens in your pilot plot. Then you go through what other episodes would be. And then you talk about what would happen in seasons two or three. And you end up talking for like 25 or 30 minutes in a pitch meeting. And they hear pitches all day long. And that's all they hear. And if you get lucky, they will either ask for more, ask you to describe more, or they may buy it. And it's it really is a difficult process. It's really yeah. really hard. It, you know, again, it's it's and and I'm always fascinated by this need to co continue to develop new creativity and the right. pressure that comes with that because without it, you're not working. Now, right. I guess you get to a certain point where you're you're more in demand than you need them. But you know, you're there. By the, by the way, I should point out that the purpose of this podcast is to chat with people who also have a a, a love for sports, and I'm so fascinated with everything you've done. I haven't even gotten there yet. We're yeah. going to talk about baseball. You've okay. been a professional baseball player four different times. How yeah. did that happen? And so, by the way, are you the coolest kid at the high school reunion? You and your brothers? You and your nah, brothers? Nah, you got to be. I, I you got to be. Not really. David Letterman writers and, and professional baseball players. There's a, guy, there's a guy who was a magician who did pretty well. Yeah. Who's that? <laughs> David Copperfield? Unless he went to Greeley, it's you guys. So, so what, what – uh, Tell me about, tell me, how does your brother become a Star Trek guy and you're a sports guy? Usually the brothers kind of line up with their loves. Yeah, so well, how, we, we, we fought as kids, so we never agreed on anything. So okay. he went in that direction. I went in the sports direction. Um, and as far as signing with teams goes, like that was absolutely just something to do during the pandemic. All of Hollywood was shut down 
So everything is is uh, is backed up because the shows that were supposed to be produced last season were never done. So those are still in line, the waiting to go. And so they're not hearing new pitches now because that's so far. It would be like two seasons away if they were to say yes. Right. So things were really slow. And, and Justin and I were writing stuff. And and then on the side, I thought, you know, it would be fun if I started approaching teams to see how many teams will sign us to one day contracts. And I don't remember how, but I became like Twitter pals with the people at the Portland pickles, which are a summer league. Well, by and, the way, no, you're one of the, apparently I'm terrible with social media. You would describe to me as one of the great Twitter followers ever. You're well, one of the you best know, Twitter followers. What's your Twitter handle, by the way? It's at Eric Stengel. At Eric Stengel. I should yeah. know that because we because we were tweeting with each other. Or yeah, I I, we I wish my I wish my German grandparents who were disappointed in me for not being a doctor were alive to, to hear <laughs> you say that. Um, <laughs> but you're, but you're one of the great follows. I just I, I'm I'm encouraging anybody. That's nice to of you to say. Twitter. It's a complete waste of time. But you know sometimes you get a couple of laps out of it. So just out of nowhere, I thought let's let's just try to approach teams and see if they'll sign us for a day okay. and um, the pickle said yes. And I have no idea why they said yes, but they said yes. And, and it wasn't just that we weren't just trying to get free stuff out of it. Like there's a real idea here during right. the pandemic. A lot of these independent teams, they're having trouble too. They canceled their seasons. They're small businesses like everybody else. They have connections to their community. And we wanted to highlight what they were doing for, the, for their community. A lot of them have food drives in the stadium where they 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 support you know a lot anything local. So we wanted to sort of structure it where they would send us a jersey. We would we made the like they would send us a contract. We would do a Zoom signing and then we would talk about the great things that they do for the community. And as once we got the first one with the Portland Pickles. I knew I could market this. So I was like contacting other teams and I was like, well, the pickles wanted to sign us. Don't you guys want to sign us? And so then the Cleburne Texas railroaders signed us. And then the Lake Erie crushers whose mascot is an angry grape. They signed us. And then this one, I cannot believe happened, but the St. Paul saints agreed to do it. They were an independent team but then they just became the AAA team for the Minnesota Twins. So technically, I'm in the Twins farm system. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I have to ask two things. A, can you play baseball? It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, I'm just wondering, can you, let's say you get the call up. I mean, what happens if there's a lot of injuries and Eric gets the call up? Can he swing a bat? I've seen the original Bad News Bears enough to know <laughs> how to like lean in and just like that's it take one for the take team. your base yep so that's it. And, and by the way you've got one hundred and twenty thousand followers so you're you're a big that's that's a huge audience on twitter okay. yes and i can i can make them turn on you uh you i i know that you can <laughs> and and so I'm, I'm 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 begging for forgiveness with whatever i may say but so and did you grow up you you did you grow up a baseball fan or like what were I you did. a fan of I, okay, I, Mets or Yankees? I, I was a yankee fan i grew up a yankee okay, fan and the very first time that so so my dad he was a doctor and very serious guy but he was like I want to take these kids to a Yankee game I want to give them the the baseball experience so in like 78 1978 which is exactly when you want to like those teams were great 
Right. He took, took us to Yankee Stadium. You would never do this now, but our our dad said to us, "Stay here." And he, he <laughs> we yeah, were in the you. stadium. He left us, <laughs> and he he went and he you know he got like the Cracker Jacks and the program and the stuff. He brought the stuff back. I don't know why we didn't go with him, but then we went and we watched the game, and it was like the perfect first game everybody describes the same thing when they go to their first game when you walk through the tunnel and you see how massive everything is and i got to see there's thurman munson at bat there's reggie jackson at bat it's like holy crap these guys are right there well we're we're in the upper deck but they were still right there yeah and it was perfect and we had hot dogs and cracker jacks and soda and all that perfect day and then as we're driving home I got car sick and threw up all over myself. Oh. And my dad jokingly said, when you get home, go up and give mom a big hug. And then uh, he said, no, 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 don't do it. And I, I did it. And I still feel <laughs> terrible about it, but it really was a good end to a perfect day. Now, did you get sick in the car? In the car. So did your mom want to sell the car? Cause that happened with my kids and my wife said, my wife was away. My kid got sick in the car and I knew what was going to happen. So I took the car and I got it detailed twice. Yeah. Yeah. And she came back and she goes, you know, something she in this car smells. It. And I said, no, it, it's clean. I got, I, this is a gift. I got it. I got it detailed for you. And she bought it. And then when we got rid of the car years later, I told her the story and she goes, if I had known, I would have told you to <laughs> sell the, car the next day. And I said, that's why I didn't tell you. So yeah. did your mom want to sell the car? Um, probably not. But but I have a similar version of that, which is that when I first was allowed to use one of my parents' cars, we have like a Pathfinder and, and Justin and I would split using it sometimes. And I don't know why, but one time he had all these jugs of milk in the back that spilled yeah. and it was hot in the car and it just, it smelled like death. And no matter what you did, that smell, that smell was there forever. Yeah. And they, they weren't getting rid of that car. Like, that was that was really disgusting. That is that's something I, I don't I don't see a Nissan product without thinking that I like that I need to throw up because of milk. That's got to be. They're not a sponsor. That's got to be. That's got to be written into a show at some point. There you go. Yeah. That's the scene. So yeah. and what about football? Football. Giants. Jets. So when I started watching football, it was like it was 1980, and the Giants and Jets were really bad. And back right. then. The only things that you could watch were Giants games and Jets games and Monday Night Football. That's it. Right. And I specifically remember 1980, there was a game when the Giants played the Chargers and Dan Fouts threw for like 444 yards. And, you know, the uniforms were awesome. There were their football oh, you, you guys did. all going all over the place. It was really, there was an exciting team. And they actually had a pretty good defense too. You didn't and become so, a Chargers fan, did you? That was 1980. That was my team. Other kids were, nobody picked the Giants and the Jets. They picked like the Steelers and the Cowboys. So I remember one guy picked the Houston Oilers for whatever reason. Um, a couple of years later, people started liking the 49ers when Joe Montana was getting good. But I stayed a Charger fan. But like, they were great. And they were, it was the Chargers. They were one of the best teams until 1983. And then they were awful until 92. Right. And, and, and now I put so much time into it that there's, I, I have no choice. They have to win before still, I die. You're still a Chargers fan. I am. Wow. I am. 
So you stuck with him. Well, you got to, at least you got a good young quarterback now. You got to be excited yes. about that. Yes, I'm very excited about that. And they they do have a good core of young players. And if they if they hired the right coach, I don't know anything about them, but if they if they hired the right coach and if they can stay healthy, why not them? So so are you the kind of sports fan where Sundays are appointment television? Like are you yes. watching the Chargers? No, every no, no. No. I'm a Chargers fan. It's disappointment television. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, what I know. Change. Oh, that's yeah, right. Was... Division with the Kansas City Chiefs. It may be a little while. Yeah, um, might. But you know, you talked about the Houston Oilers. So I grew up a Giants fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a little older, and I they were awful when I was a kid. So I needed yeah. a second team. And my second team, I couldn't pick a team in the same conference. I I was a Houston Oilers fan because of Earl Campbell. Plus, they yeah. had that love you blue, you know, Houston Oilers. We'd sing. Loved all that. I, I loved the Houston Oilers when I was a kid. Then Earl Campbell retired. And the Giants, as you know, like early 80s, they started to. Bill Parcells comes in. Lawrence Taylor gets drafted. Right. And the next sure. thing you know, they're competing for championships. So right. you know, things turn. But, you know, I stuck with them through thick and thin. You jumping on the Charlie Joyner, Dan Fouts bandwagon. And the- they, but Kellen Winslow, uh, John Jefferson, they, they had great – they've always yeah. had great players. They just can't win. They're but like they're- – Don't you think it's funny as a kid, like what brings you – like uniforms play such a huge role. They do. In why we like the team. I like the, I love that powder blue in yep. Houston. And yep. the Chargers always had the great bolts and, and yep. the light blue. And that, you know, not only do they have Dan Fouts and Air Coryell, but you must have loved them because they had just great looking uniforms. They had great uniforms. And yeah, they, when they were good, they were an exciting team and they looked damn good. And, and now they look damn good. And, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe something happened. Herbert's a really, he stood in there this year. He wasn't supposed to play at all. How do you feel about them moving to Los Angeles? I mean, I think I think it. I have a lot of friends in San Diego because over the years we tweet while watching the game and and commiserate while they melt down here or there. And and I feel bad for people that lost their team. And I understand why they they feel like they can't root for them anymore. Um, I think, I think marketing wise, they're doing everything they can to win Los Angeles. I think they're actually doing a very smart job. I think their their rebranding is right. I think them, I like Philip Rivers, but I think them moving on to a younger guy is was the right move because if you're trying to to win the market, you need to bring in new fans. And I actually see them doing a lot of really smart smart things yeah i'm in the minority of folks that think football in los angeles not just once but twice is is doomed for failure but that's a conversation for another time uh do you make it out there and go to games yeah i've been to games before um actually i have a really good memory of i can't remember why we went out there but my wife and i went out there um and we were actually at marty schottenheimer's 200th win when he was chargers coach and I was friendly with somebody on the charger staff at the time and they let us go to the press conference for some reason. So like wow. there's the people doing their job, asking the questions, Marty Schottenheimer's teary eyed and won his 200th game is a big deal. His last game of the season against like the Cardinals, a totally meaningless game. And then there's my, my wife and me just sort of standing off to the side, trying to blend into the wall. And, and I'm just like going crazy. And, uh, I remember, so <laughs> there was there was one time we went to a game and we were lucky enough, 
I don't remember why that we were on the field after the game. And I thought, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go up to LaDainian Tomlinson and I'm going to try to book him for the show, for the Letterman show. Okay. It probably was like 2006. It was some year where he was like going to be MVP or he was so good that year. Um, So we went to a game and I gave my wife my camera and I was like, I had to do the fanboy thing. I said, like, when I'm going there and I'm talking to him, just take a picture for me. Will you do, will you do that for me? So I went and I talked to him. He was perfectly nice. Uh, they weren't coming out east anymore that season, so it didn't actually work out. But I had this picture of me talking to Damian Tomlinson, and he was wearing this red velour top and red velour pants. And um, years later, um, I was on eBay. And there was a consignment store in San Diego that was selling things from LaDainian Tomlinson's house. Yeah. And there was the red velour top and bottom. And I was like, holy crap. I know it seems like stalkerish, but I'm getting that. <laughs> and that is now hanging in my closet. Do I want to know how much you paid for the velour? Oh, it was, it was like nothing. I mean, nobody wanted it. The, the, right. Who would yeah. want that? The velour top. <laughs> I never uh, put it on. Uh-huh. It's 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 just displayed, but uh, yeah, that's how far my fandom goes. That I will buy the private clothing of the people that are that play for my team. Yeah, that that's degenerate status. That that's getting, <laughs> really that's degenerate status. I will yeah. tell you though, I loved Qualcomm. You know, why I loved Qualcomm. Why Rubio's fish fish tacos? Yeah. Did they you ever did go to Rubio's right. Fish Tacos? No, I didn't. It was it was one of their concession stands, yeah. and I love the fish taco. Yep. And they're one of the few ballparks that had it. And I, whenever I'd be out there, I'd be like, I'm, I'm going to Qualcomm. I got to get a Rubio's fish taco. Yeah. And that was, that was my great memory uh, yeah. of, of that ballpark. Um, they did that right. So, so th- this may bring things to an end that I want to get back to your writing career in a second. We only have a couple of minutes, but um, a hockey fan. Not really. Um, oh, good. Okay. My brother occasionally say Rangers. Yeah. Well, my brother occasionally goes to Rangers games. He's more into hockey than I am. And so we go to the games sometimes, and it's actually incredibly fun. I, I love going to see hockey live. Big, Big Islanders family. Yeah. Big Islanders family. Yeah. Big Islanders family. It's Why did they ever move to Brooklyn? Did that happen, or did I make that up? Uh, I think it happened. As a matter of fact, I think, <laughs> I think not only did it happen, but I think once upon a time I may have had season tickets to the Islanders in Brooklyn. Really? Um, and you would know this because we lived in the same neighborhood. We'd have to get in the car at 4.30 for yeah. a 7 p.m. game. Yeah. So first season, and we had we I split a season with my brother-in-law. The first season we made it to like eight games, which was half of our allotment almost. Yeah. And then it came four games, and then it was like, what the heck are we doing? <laughs> it's Brooklyn. There's no easy way to get to Brooklyn no. from Westchester, as you know. And we finally moved on from that. But I'm looking forward to them moving back, you know, to to what is essentially Long Island, because then we'll start going to games there. But uh, let me finish with this. I'm always curious. I, I don't know if you are, are you in like what do you have right now what's your daily job what do you get my, up and do what's your sense of purpose my daily job and this sounds really stupid but like this is my mantra my daily job is to make sure that not a joke that every single day I take one step closer to either getting a show or like signing with another team because like signing with another team gives us something really fun to talk about when we're on a pitch or, or like people want to hear about it or, you know, there's somebody wants to write an article about it. It's just another fun way of, 
of, of doing things, but I want to, every day I'm like, okay, what can I do today? What, uh, who am I going to follow up with that we pitched to last year to find out what they're looking for? There's all like, you're always keeping a mental list of the, the only way to make it, and this is what Greg Garcia does is to have a million irons in the fire. You got to just keep doing everything and maybe something will pan out. So you just have to keep thinking of things to do, to pitch, like, or if you read that somebody, oh, a friend of mine is, uh, it, it just sold a show to, to find out if they need writers or just any, whatever it is, like, keep taking a step forward. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it, 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 like, it's, it's tough. It is really tough. Do, do you need to do that to some extent? Like, I remember being in between jobs and my job was looking for jobs. Mm -hmm. And if if the, if a day went by where I didn't put an effort into finding that next job, I felt like I let myself down. Is it like, even though it may not come to anything, it just, you feel like you, you actually accomplished something that day? Absolutely. No, you, you, and, but that's the pressure that I put on myself. Like I have, I have to feel like that I've done something with the day or it feels like a, a day wasted. And does your brother have that same determination? Like, do you do no, this? No, he sleeps all the time. Yeah. All right. So it sounds like a great relationship. Yeah. He, wa he wakes up, calls you and go, what did you get done today? That, that's the way. Yeah. No, he's, he's definitely the same way. But like, he, <laughs> it is, but he has, he has nothing to do with signing the, signing with the teams, which is really funny because I'll, I'll call him and I'll be like, yeah, the Vermont Lake monster said no. And he'll have no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and and so is the ultimate goal to like get something picked up and then have like a 10-year annuity like you know i always talk to greg about you know once you get that sitcom that goes into syndication and the checks come rolling in i mean is that the goal here to get something that gets picked up is successful and you just now have that annuity we, the, and, all, the and also the responsibility of writing obviously which you love well the the goal is to get something creative that you're proud of on the air and we want to have multiple projects on the air and we want to work with a variety of voices and represent all kinds of people. And like, we, we want to have our own production company where it's like, Oh, well, the Stengels have another show that's going to go up. And we, we just, we're excited about the idea of um, going forward with the thing that we just, that I had to cancel our meeting for last time. But um we're just excited about about working with new people and, and getting multiple things in motion. Yeah. Did you hear me when I pitched Greg Garcia that I'm available? If you ever yeah. write a role for like an aging sportscaster uh, <laughs> who's about to be out of work or something like that, I'm, I'm available and I can speak from experience. Okay. I'm always well, I'm, lo I'm looking for that opportunity. I, I will. Did you know, by the way, that I worked at Sirius XM? We didn't even get to that. You know, I, I didn't know that. What do you do at Sirius? Somebody mentioned that to me, and I said, uh, maybe I'll ask, what do you do at Sirius XM? Yeah, um, my brother and I worked for the comedy channels for about a year, and we sort of helped guide. A, 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 there was a morning show that was on, and, um, and I loved it. I thought it was great working there. The, the hardest part is getting up at like 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning oh, to yeah. go there. Yeah. yeah. But um yeah, and and then the key to working there is knowing which bathroom to use. <laughs> I think you guys have the right bathroom. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right about that. That, that was yeah. probably a struggle, but you know, <laughs> it, it 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 you know, people are going to hear this and go, "Wow, they were the lead writers for David Letterman." You know, they probably don't need to work anymore. But the reality is, we we always view people and have the wrong impression. I mean, 
you've got to, you've got to still be working. That's why you're doing all these things. Right. And it's like, the point is to come up with something that we like and we're excited about and passionate about and be able to do it. Like that is the dream it, to have our own show. That is the, absolutely the dream. Yeah. And, and I will say this in closing, would it surprise you if I said, and I don't, I don't mean this insulting in any way. When you come from Letterman, I'm actually surprised that you were part of the Harry Connick situation. You know, a show that's designed, you know, midday talk show at, it's no longer Housewives because now men are home. And I, I get that, but at a different right. audience that David Letterman would appeal to different kind of sensibilities. It, it, why does that surprise me that, that that's a project that you were part of? Well, the, the shows, the show was originally intended to be more freewheeling. Like we were talking before about how Dave, if you notice somebody in the audience, the show would change. Right. Harry, Harry does that when he performs live. Like he talks to the audience. He, he's a really smart, sharp, funny guy. And we wanted to use a lot of that skill and for his daytime show. And so we did a lot of that where there were, there were organic things that happened every single show that were freaking hilarious. And that's what we were going for. The daytime TV, the, the people who watch daytime TV, they have what they like. It's like they, they have their, their chat show, they have their game show, they have their judge show, and that's what they like. Don't change it. Judge Judy, don't change it. Dr. Phil, don't change it. All of that. Um, and we were trying to do something a little different. Uh, and it, it, I guess it didn't resonate. but. We were trying the one of the original concepts that people were throwing around to so people could understand what we we're trying to do is to call it late night in the daytime. It wasn't really that, but that was how they described it when they were trying to tell people what our show was. Um, and so there there are similar things. And, and, and also there, you know, there are producers from Letterman, this guy Brian Teddo is a very good friend of mine who he, he did all the sports booking at late show he is the executive producer at the view like there's a there's a lot of there's a similarity in that like even with the view i would imagine there's an immediacy to getting shows done to taping it doing it right getting it done and moving on to the next one and that's how it translates there, it's it's very similar in that respect yeah you talk about people's behaviors with the shows they watch you know the game show i watch deal or no deal yeah and it's it's not because of the the women by the way right I actually do the the mental gymnastics of this is a bad deal. It's the yeah. dumbest show ever. It's right. you open a case and then you go, do you want the deal or not? And I'm going, that's not a fair deal. Of course you can't take this deal because it right. doesn't add up. It's yeah. like there's one case for a dollar, one case for five hundred thousand dollars. The offer should be two fifty, and they right. offer you like eighty thousand dollars. Of course you're not taking that deal. Drives <laughs> me bad. I, I don't know why. I, I digress. I, I gotta let you go. This is part one of what will be a ten part series because there's Good. nine million things to talk about. And right. I'll you with this, uh, beware of the act. Okay. Yeah, I think right. that's good for everybody to follow. <laughs> yes. Thank you hey, for listen, having me. I listen you, to your I, I listen to you all the time, by the way. I meant to say that at the beginning, but I, I really I listen to NFL radio all the time. Uh, I, um, I gotta have my mom listen to this podcast because she she only she believes she's the only one that listens. And, oh, okay. and I used to believe that she's the only one that listens. <laughs> I, I actually appreciate that. Well, thank right. you. Uh, no, thanks for coming on. Really a lot of fun spending time with you. Hope we can do it again. That would be great. Thank you so much. 
As always, hope you enjoyed the conversation. I always end these conversations feeling like there was so much left on the table and always want to revisit with these guys. And maybe somewhere down the road, we'll do that. But love talking with him, especially about his time working with David Letterman. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. We have a new episode every week on Thursdays. You can get the podcast on the SiriusXM app. And of course, wherever you get your podcast, I hope you'll join me for another edition next Thursday. I'm Bruce Murray. Serious XM Podcasts.